You're listening to the IC Interviews from Investors Chronicle. I'm John Human, editor of the Investors Chronicle, and in this episode, I've been speaking to the magazine's regular investment trust columnist, John Barron. A former fund manager, John has provided updates on two live investment trust-based portfolios for the Investors Chronicle since 2009, one focused on growth and the other on income. John has recently completed an updated version of his book, The Financial Times Guide to Investment Trust, Unlocking the City's Best Kept Secret. In this interview, John will explain to me why he favours investment trusts, how the techniques he uses to manage his portfolios have shielded them from the worst impacts of COVID-19, and why he's top-slicing technology and taking contrarian positions in commercial property and commodities. So welcome, John. How, How are you? I'm very well, thank you, and hope you're well too. I'm okay, thank you. So you write a regular investment trust column for us. Um, you've actually written a book on it, and I think there's a new version coming out. Tell us, uh, which I've contributed to. You do? Tell us what's new in the, in the new version. Well, it's substantially updated, um, and it goes into a little bit more detail as to their unique characteristics. But it reminds everybody at the outset that investment trusts are very um, special investment vehicles, underrated. They've outperformed their um, um, brethren, if you like, in the sense of unit trusts and uh, OICs. Um, And they've outperformed over the long term. Um, They can be a little bit more volatile, but broadly speaking, they're a superior form of investment for those investors looking for pooled investments. Um, And I go into some detail about this, about the various characteristics. Um, And then we broaden it out, the book, contributors um, come in and give their perspective, but then we actually put theory into practice. And I share with readers how a real investment trust portfolio is both constructed and monitored um, by way of example when it comes to the theory. So you run two portfolios for the Investors Chronicle and you run some more on your own website. So so give us a little feel for, for how you put your, your theories around investment trusts uh, into practice. Well, as you well know, um, I've been reporting to readers of the Investors Chronicle um, on two real investment trust portfolios since 2009 now. So it's a good 11 years. But they are, in fact, two of nine real investment trust portfolios that are managed on the website johnbarronportfolios.co.uk. And what we aim to do with those nine is basically... Um, five um, convey an investment journey right from the beginning um, through to realizing our financial goals. And so as that journey progresses across the five portfolios, they become a little bit more diversified. They yield more. They become a little bit more hopefully defensive uh, in order to protect past gains. Um, And then the other four pursue particular objectives, whether it be a thematic one, uh, an objective, a green portfolio, an overseas portfolio, and a high dividend portfolio, which presently yields about 5.7%. So in short, um, the nine real investment trust portfolios achieve a range of strategies and income objectives. And the two that are covered in the IC um, have been the longest running, as I say, since 2009. Um, I could go into more detail, and maybe we will, John, as to how we construct those portfolios. But, um, you know, we aim to invest for the long term. There is a growth bias where income objectives allow. Um, And as that journey unfolds, we increasingly 
diversify the portfolio. So hopefully they become, and, and time has suggested this has been achieved, they become a bit more defensive. Um, but we're never complacent, despite the open performance page. And as you've seen from the performance figures in the IC of the portfolios, um, they've done very well relative to benchmarks. We are never complacent and um, are, if you like, always questioning our assumptions. Those portfolios have done very well uh, over the long term. Obviously, the pandemic um, has come along and perhaps shaken a lot of things up this year. H- how did your uh, strategies work out during, during this period of, of quite extreme volatility? Reasonably well. Um, I mean, if I give you an example, three, um, perhaps four of the portfolios now of the nine are in positive territory. Uh, they've made gains at a time when the market is down. I don't know, 17, 18% at the moment. And one of the reasons for that is that they have, uh, they, they, they have very much a growth bias. So we are overweight technology. We are overweight healthcare and biotech. Uh, we tend to be overweight smaller companies and underweight value stocks. Um, and we still think that growth, um, despite value having underperformed over the last 10 years, we still think growth is going to do relatively well. So overall, we're pleased. There's been one or two areas where we've been less pleased. You can't have perfect portfolios. Um, but despite outperforming markets, there's one or two lessons, I think, to be learned from this pandemic, including the importance of, um, of uh, making sure you've got your diversification in place. How do you diversify? What's the secret? Well, as far as we're concerned, we look at, I mean, readers or listeners will understand what diversification is, and that is you're investing in assets that are less correlated to equities in the hope that um, you protect um, your gains if there's a wobble in the market. Um, How do we do that? Um, We were early supporters of infrastructure investment trusts. We were early supporters of renewable energy um, we also have um, had gold in the portfolio, physical gold, um, by way of ETFs. They are predominantly investment trust portfolios, but where there is no investment trust equivalent for a, um, for a particular commodity we're after, gold being one example, then we're not afraid to resort to the occasional um, exchange-traded fund. Um, commercial property has in the past been a, um, an area that we've considered useful uh, in the balanced portfolio to achieve an element of, moder- of diversification. And we know that we could talk about that. Uh, but we also believe that um, diversification can be achieved within the equity market. And as I've said, we've, we've had a bias towards growth technology stocks, um, biotech, etc., but also growth stocks in general, because we feel in particularly in these uncertain times, growth will be continue to be rewarded as indeed um, they it has been so far to date during this crisis. Growth is obviously where we want to be. It's what we want to achieve as investors. Uh, but but you mentioned income. A lot of a lot of investors are looking to to create an income out of their investments. But, but you said um, that you have a growth bias towards income. Can you can you explain what what you mean by that? Because it, you know they don't seem like very natural bedfellows. No, no, a fair point. I mean, where there is not an income requirement, there is a growth bias. Now that's not one hundred percent growth. You have to maintain portfolio balance and keep things. Um, uh, within a certain structure. But the bottom line is there is a growth balance. balance. Where there is an, inco- an increasingly an income uh, requirement, um, yes, we introduce uh, infrastructure, renewable energy, 
Um, commodities we've recently been introducing, uh, they produce uh, out of favor sector at the moment, they producing a high yield uh, and we think sustainable yield. But you can also, one of the unique features of investment trusts is that an increasing number of them are using their flexibility to pay a decent income out of capital and reserves. Without getting into too much detail, um, listeners will know that investment trusts have things called revenue reserves. That's one of the things that makes them unique. They can store away income as the years passed, put it into something called revenue reserves. And when there's a wobble in the market, they can pay out of that. But increasingly, also, investment trusts are paying out of capital as well, profits, if you like, that have been banked. And that combination is, is positive. An example, for example, is uh, JP Morgan Japan Smaller Companies, which pays um, 4% of its net asset value on a yearly basis. Uh, now, that will mean, because the NAV, the net asset value, goes up and down, there'll be a fluctuation in the dividend. But I think a development like that um, is positive because they are providing a yield in a market which hitherto had been pretty scarce when it comes to income. Uh, so you can both get that combination of capital growth, Japanese smaller companies, we think will continue to be a good area to be in, but at the same time, draw some income, uh, as long as um, you, you accept there's going to be a little bit of volatility in the payouts. And, 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 and Japan, sorry, JP Morgan isn't just isn't the only, uh, only example. We've got, you know, Montanaro, UK smaller companies. We've got international biotechnology, uh, many others. And provided these companies don't overpromise, and we think four percent is very reasonable of NAV, then uh, we welcome this as a good, as a positive development for investors. Absolutely, it, it sounds like the the uh, total return approach that uh, that's increasingly being advocated as a way to generate income. Absolutely. Um, in terms of some of the themes that you mentioned, Japanese smaller companies, you mentioned uh, biotechnology. There, can you talk me through? why you are attracted to certain themes, uh, Japan being one of them, for example. I know a lot of investors are slightly nervous about Japan. It has a bit of a, a checkered history, but you've been, you've been bullish on Japan for quite a while. Yes. I mean, we've been, I mean, in a way, we're, we tend to be slightly contrarian investors, but let, let's go with the flow for the moment. Um, I suppose our biggest um, um, overweight is, is growth stocks generally. Um, and that includes technology, biotech, and each of those have their own particular stories, which we can cover if we have time. But we're very firmly of the view that over the long term, and that's what we stress, we're investing over the long term, John. We, you, I think it's very important to have the humility to accept that I certainly don't know where markets are going in the short term. I, I would be misleading you if I inferred I did. But what I do know is, is that we can add value over time. And if we invest over time, then investors will do um, uh, very well indeed. Um, and investment trusts have that track record of outperforming not only their benchmarks, but also unit trusts and OICs, uh, the other form of pooled funds, if you like. Growth stocks, we think, will continue to outperform. I, I wrote in a recent um, website and IC piece about Professor Bessenbinder's research suggesting that um, only a very small number of stocks actually deliver that, um, that uh, the, most of the market's gains. Uh, and they tend to be growth stocks. And that's why it's important to keep um, a portfolio orientated towards growth. So 
sectors, technology, biotech, um, but we're not afraid to be contrarian investors as well, as you well know. And um, when infrastructure trusts first came on the scene, renewable energy, there was a large degree of skepticism there in the market, as you could see from some of the small discounts on investment trusts. Uh, but that sentiment has improved. Premiums have now um, gone out and often are 10, 15 percent um, premiums to NAV. Uh, but we still think they provide a good source of, of uh, income and diversification going forward and indeed have provided some good growth in the past. You mentioned um, premium there in terms of the price at which you can buy an investment trust. Do you have a disciplined strategy when it comes to uh, deciding when you are going to make your entry point? And I guess the pandemic would have, would have potentially thrown out some interesting uh, entry points given you know, that many of these investment trusts would have sold off to significantly below NAV. Yes, I think I, we, 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 we do have a very disciplined approach and, 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 and um, if you like, uh, stock criteria uh, uh, is, is very important to us. Uh, it has to be disciplined. Having said that, um, there can be a view in the investment trust world that you don't buy investment trusts on premiums. Uh, we disagree with that. We think if there's a good track record and we like the underlying market and we speak with the management by and large, we, 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 we tend to invest in, in investment trusts. And I can think of you know, something like Scottish Mortgage Trust, for example, the largest investment trust, which is a FTSE 100 company. You know, if we had not bought or added to positions on a, on a premium before the um, pandemic struck, then we would have been sorry because that has performed very well indeed. Uh, but by and large, we're always examining trusts and their current value, whether they're on standing on premiums or discounts. And we're always asking the question, does an investment trust deserve the premium it's standing on? And I'll give you one example. The renewable energy at the moment, there's a bit of a debate about pricing, um, power prices going forward. And there the, the are various forecasts out there suggesting modest declines as the years pass. You know, we are looking at that very closely. Um, that is beginning to impact on uh, modestly on NAVs. But we still think, for the moment at least, that renewable energy is a good place to be, um, given the yields, sustainable yields we think on offer. I mentioned trust trading at potentially large discounts as a, as a result of the, the pandemic. Um, what's your view there? I mean, you, you, you yourself mentioned that you, you take a contrarian approach. And I guess buying something at a, a significant discount is a contrarian uh, move. Um, you, you've stuck by some fairly unloved sectors through time, and commercial property stands out as one of those at the moment. Can you talk to me about, about, about perhaps commercial property is a good example of, of, of how you look at things, perhaps from a different perspective as, as some investors? Yes. I mean, the, the, the crisis has thrown up um, a lot of opportunities in some ways. I mean, I will come on to commercial property in a second, but one example is a technology stock called an investment trust called Augmentum Fintech, which went out to a, you know, a very large discount during the crisis. And we introduced it into the portfolios or some of the portfolios at least. And now it's back at towards par, um, but still offers tremendous potential, we think. Um, but commercial property uh, is an area where, um, as part of our portfolio seeking, those portfolios seeking diversification, we had some exposure. We still have uh, some exposure. Um, and it's been an area that, in some respects, has disappointed. Um, sentiment is poor. Um, discounts have widened. But, you know, John, um, I think it's very important to always question 
the relationship between sentiment and fundamentals. Um, we all know that, uh, you know, you try and buy investments when sentiment trails the fundamentals and then question the investment when sentiment is ahead of fundamentals. And it is our view that provided you're careful with your selection, sentiment is trailing fundamentals over the medium to long term when it comes to commercial property. Despite all the bad news out there, people will, um, in a, perhaps a modified working pattern, with courtesy of modified working patterns, they, they will need to get back into the office. And so we are taking a cautiously positive approach to this um, and particularly looking at those opportunities outside the southeast, actually. We still think the regions have a lot of catch up um, to go. Um, so we're not, you know, betting, um, betting the bank on it. Uh, every portfolio is balanced in its approach. No particular asset or is asset class is is um, too aggressively pursued. But, you know, we still think there's a place for commercial property in a balanced portfolio. I mean, looking at it from the other perspective, you, you mentioned you know, in the case of commercial property, um, you know, sentiment is very poor. In the case of technology and healthcare, sentiment is very strong. Um, uh, perhaps it's got ahead of itself. I mean, do, is that uh, impacting the way you think about some of your exposures to those sectors which have actually performed incredibly well during the pandemic? Yes, I mean, it is, John, in the sense that we have been very modestly top slicing some of our growth um, exposure technology, um, particularly, um, um, but not but not aggressively. So uh, we've just been top slicing because they've had such a good run. I mean, some of our portfolios are in positive territory when, as I say, the market is down 17, 18 percent. Um, and we think that certainly smaller companies in the UK could look uh, interesting. Um, and we also think the sentiment is poor there at the moment. You know, when you've had an economic shock, uh, many people suggest smaller companies is the last place you want to be. Um, we think there's been some good value there. Uh, and we've been, we've been, if you like, moving some of this money that we've top sliced from technology stocks um, into other areas that are presently out of favour. But I do, I do remind you, John, that we remain very much growth investors. That's our bias at the moment. And, and although we've top sliced, we remain overweight growth. Um, but, you know, after 10 years of underperformance, a decade of underperformance by value, there's got to be some value there. But I'd encourage listeners to be cautious in how they try to capture that value because many will be value traps. I mean, you mentioned UK smaller companies, which is quite a contrarian position to be taking at the moment, given how poorly the UK economy has performed throughout this crisis. I mean, are you limiting your UK exposure? Or are you are you nervous yourself about where where the UK goes from here? We don't. It doesn't feel like we're in a particularly good place economically. I I, I think I mean, coming into the crisis, uh, John, actually, the UK economy relative to other economies was doing quite well. Um, now we can debate the figures, but the bottom line is. Broadly speaking, it was doing quite well and certainly better than some of the sceptics um, with regards to um, um, Brexit were suggesting. Um, I think the important thing here is always to maintain an element of portfolio balance. No matter how positive we're about, uh, we are about a sector, a region or an asset class, we try to keep balanced portfolios. It doesn't stop us being overweight 
those sectors we favour, but we're not, we're not, as I say, betting the bank or the portfolio on any particular sectors. Now, when I say we're overweight smaller companies, we are. Um, I still, and we still think that there's value there in the sense that when an, when an economy takes a shock, value stocks underperform. Um, that shouldn't be a surprise. Uh, they're more geared into the domestic economy. They tend to be highly indebted. Uh, they tend to be higher risk plays. Um, the, the quid pro quo of that, of course, is if there was a sustained recovery, then you would expect perhaps value stocks to do better. Time will tell. We don't believe that this is going to be a very strong recovery. We think it's going to be patchy in parts, and therefore you've got to be very selective. But growth, we still think, is is the right place to be because in times like this, particularly in times like this, people will continue to pay up for those markets that they think they're going to do well. And when it comes to smaller companies, coming back to your question, many of these smaller companies now are very global in their reach. We underestimate the extent to which, courtesy of, partly courtesy of technology itself, they're able to access markets and indeed compete with many of their larger brethren on more of an equal footing than they've ever done before. It sounds like, like you'd probably need to take a, a selective approach to uh, playing, playing a theme like UK smaller companies, though. H- how do you go about getting, getting that exposure? I think you back very good fund managers, John. That's the point. I mean, you know, our, you know, we're blessed in the investment trust space, investment trust space, because we have a disproportionate number of very good fund managers. I mean, taking, taking investment trusts in, in their entirety, they have outperformed not only their benchmarks. Now, these are averages, of course, and there's exceptions at both ends, but they've not only outperformed their benchmarks, but outperformed unit trusts and OICs, as we've mentioned before. Now, this is particularly true in the smaller company space because investment trusts are ideally suited to smaller companies because they don't have been closed-ended in structure. They don't have to worry about money flows coming in and out. And that allows the better fund managers to take a medium to longer-term view and together with the use of gearing, back their their hunches, if you like, um, and research. And over time, the figures would suggest that they've achieved tremendous outperformance. So you choose the good fund managers you keep in touch with them. You keep an eye on the discount and the gearing. Um, and there are always nuances to an approach like this. But by and large, as a sweeping generalization, we are blessed with the fan managers we have in the sector. Um, and investors should benefit from that. Do you, do you have any particular um, favorites, as it were, that, uh, that you use to, uh, to get those exposures? Yes, I mean you will see from the two portfolios in the in the IC, uh, we have uh, BlackRock Throckmorton Trust, we have Henderson Smaller Companies, which is more medium uh, companies than smaller, but still has good exposure there. We have Standard Life Smaller Companies, um, we have Oryx International Growth, which has a, a slightly specialist um, investment vehicle, but still smaller companies. Um, we have a range. Of them because we don't like putting all our eggs in one basket. But these are all fund managers who have performed well over the long term. You mentioned earlier that that whilst your portfolios had performed extremely well during the pandemic, um, that you had learned some lessons. Um, 
you know, the question I was going to ask was, has, has the pandemic changed the way you think about structuring your portfolios in any way? What, what, what are those lessons that, that you take from this, this very strange period? Well, I think, I don't want to sound complacent. I, I think we're broadly very happy with the way the portfolios have performed and the, and the way they've been structured, therefore. I suppose, you know, we've had disappointments. I mean, um, our exposure to commercial property um, has been a disappointment uh, in the sense that sentiment is very negative at the moment. Now, we, broadly speaking, are, are maintaining some exposure to commercial property because we think it's the, the sentiment trails fundamentals. Um, we've always realized the importance of cash in a portfolio. We consider it a separate asset class. Um, and it comes particularly use, comes in particularly useful at times like this. But broadly speaking, I don't want our listeners to think we're uh, disappointed with everything. Um, we, we, we are very pleased with our portfolios. And, and um, as I've said, you know, three or four of them are now in positive territory uh, and, and the others are not too far behind. So there's always lessons to be learned. I think, I think the biggest one for us is always question your assumptions. Never be complacent. Never just go with the flow. I mean, we are really looking at the technology sector at the moment and saying, look, is it fully priced? Is all the good news in the price? But then I would remind listeners of the piece I put in the IC um, earlier this month um, about remaining focused on the long term and Professor Bessenbinder's research showing that actually, you know, you've got to seek those growth companies, because a very, very small percentage um, in the US is something like 4% of all the 26,000 stocks that he um, uh, looked at from 1926, only 4% really accounted for the vast majority, the best performing 4% accounted for the vast majority of, of, of those stock market gains. So you've got to go looking for these companies, and we unashamedly do, even though sometimes you can get mud on your face. You mentioned cash uh, and, and the fact you treat it as a, as a separate asset within your portfolios. What, what's been your uh, approach with your cash position um, during the pandemic? When, when, did you position differently in terms of your, your, your levels of cash? Is cash something that you, you have on hand because you want to deploy it, or are you using it defensively? Oh, um, both in a way, as I, I suggested to you, that of the nine real investment trust portfolios we manage on the website, jobbrandportfolios.co.uk, um, five um, convey an investment journey. And, um, and during that journey, the cash balance actually builds because we consider it as a very valuable asset class, both, as you say, to be defensive, but also, secondly, to actually take an opportunity when it comes, um, take advantage of opportunities when it comes to um, stock market wobbles. And um, so we see it in both, both lights, if you like. And to directly answer your question, we weren't clever enough to stack up on raise cash levels before the pandemic. Um, I think like most people, we weren't expecting the pandemic. We hadn't factored it into our calculations, but because of our portfolio discipline, and I'm not just saying this, but we have quite a you know, strict discipline on how we construct portfolios. Um, the cash levels were there for those portfolios that needed to be defensive. And I think that helped, well, it did help when it came to the downturn, broadly speaking. 
I mean, in terms of cash, you don't, you obviously don't earn a lot of money on a cash position. Um, and, you know, one cannot see that changing uh, anytime soon, particularly given the amount of stimulus that is being pumped into not just the UK economy, but, but economies around the world. Is, is that level of government largesse something that, that you, you consider uh, in your portfolio decisions? Um, yes. I mean, I should start, and I don't want to sound um, disrespectful, uh, John, to, to those many experts out there, but we tend to take expert forecasts with a pinch of salt um, and governments you can't ignore. But, you know, there have been many crises previously um, and stock markets have accommodated them. Volatility, yes, but accommodated them and moved on. And what we're trying to do with the portfolios is focus on the long term, put together a good quality portfolio that um, meets um, investors' remits, um, remains balanced, has an element of cash, but is not afraid to back contrarian sectors and views. Um, and we try not to get too, how can I put it, um, behoven to all the various analysis and sometimes noise that is out there. I mean, at the moment in the markets, there's this, there's this if you like, dual influence. You've got the economy in not great shape. Um, yet, you know, the various metrics, valuation metrics would suggest that we're going to get a very speedy recovery. I, I would suggest an element of caution with regards to that latter assumption. But on the other hand, you've got this massive stimulus by governments. Um, now, do you bet against the Fed? Um, we are just trying to keep our eye focused on quality investments. Um, I think growth is both defensive at the moment because there is uncertainty about the economy, but is also producing its own economic cycle in many respects. Companies are going to have to invest for the future. Um, the marketplace is changing. The landscape is evolving and technology will be of benefit in, um, in trying to capture that. So the two contrarian measures, economies uncertain, massive stimulus, um, we're focusing on maintaining portfolio discipline and, uh, and quality in, in, in trying to navigate these waters. And at the moment, we're succeeding to do so. But I stress, we're never complacent. We're always questioning our assumptions. It makes me uh, think of something that you've, uh, you've written before and, and spoken about when you've uh, uh, been speaking at events for us um, about time in the market rather than market timing. Um, it, it's, it's one of the things you, you've often mentioned that really sticks in my head. Um, you know, it, when, you, when you say it, you, you get this feeling that, that you know, nothing unnerves you because, because you have this mantra, almost, almost a mantra, to rely on. Talk, talk us through that, that philosophy. Well, keeping it very brief, John, you've heard it too many times probably, and I can only apologise, but uh, keeping it very brief, uh, I don't th only th a very small number of people know where the market's heading in the short term, and, and sometimes they know it because of luck or sometimes they're not. But the bottom line is, I think it's a bit of a mugs game trying to predict short-term fluctuations in the market. I know there's a whole industry out there doing it, and my apologies, I don't wish to offend anybody, but... I think it's important to approach the market with an element of humility, and that is we don't know where the market's heading in the short term. We may, we may think we know, but we don't. Um, and history would suggest, coming back to your point about time in the market, history would suggest that if you try and time the market 
um, then you usually get punished. In other words, if you try and say, right, I'm going to raise cash levels, I'm coming out of the market by whatever percent or totally liquid, liquid um, dating a portfolio, there's various assumptions you're taking. One, you're getting the short-term timing right. Uh, but secondly, you're also assuming that actually you know when to get back in. And invariably, the various statistics out there produced by Fidelity, Barclays and others suggest that those that do try to time the market actually come off worse. So we adopt the approach, stick with the market provided portfolio remits allow, um, and just make sure you try it, you, you're positioned accordingly. Um, I forget the figures exactly, John, but you know, if you'd missed you know, the 10 best trading days, then you would be you would have lost, you know, or 20 best trading days over a 10-year period, you could be down 20, 30% very easily. Um, and then that assumes you know when to get back into the market. So all those assumptions, unless there are people out there who think they, they've got the answers, we just tend to stick with the market over the long term. But do stress and remind listeners and investors and readers of the column and members of the website that actually investment should be considered a long-term, um, long-term uh, objective. Indeed. That's not to say, though, that you don't make moves uh, in the short term. You know, you're, you're constantly rebalancing the portfolio. Can you explain the difference between that long term view against what, what you do on a more tactical basis, um, you know, week, week after week? Absolutely. Well, I suppose it's the difference between strategy and tactics, I suppose, <clears throat> a tactical and a strategic view. We're still, you can remain invested in the market, but that doesn't stop you, actually, um, making judgment calls as to whether you think a particular sector, regional theme has had a good run and now it has come the time to top slice, but reinvesting that money in sectors that you think have where sentiment trails fundamental. So you, you can stay, broadly speaking, with your cash levels the same, but still moving modestly, gently, the portfolio from one sector to the other or, or weighting them slightly differently in order to what you believe capture will capture outperformance. Uh, and we're not afraid to do that. What we don't like is saying, right, we're going to liquidate half the portfolio because we think there's a wobble in front of us. Presumably you don't do it too much because that, uh, that could become a rather expensive, uh, expensive process. Char- charges must be something that you consider uh, very deeply all the time in managing portfolios like these. Yes, you do. And you try to keep the changes to a bare minimum. And one of the advantages of investing in investment trusts is that you are investing in a portfolio of companies uh, being a pooled investment. Uh, And you're trusting the fund manager to be making moves within that portfolio. But you're you're absolutely right. You try to minimize the changes. But there are occasions when you do need to make changes. Um, You mentioned previously you felt, and I, I wouldn't necessarily disagree that in the short term, technology has had a very strong run. So we have been top slicing a little bit um, with regards to our technology weightings whilst remaining overweight generally uh, and recycling that into, well, most recently, commodities, for example, because we think uh, commodities is definitely a contrarian call. There's big discounts there. There's high yields, which we think are sustainable. And we think that sentiment trails fundamentals when it comes to commodity investment trusts. So there's an example of us top slicing technology a little bit, putting it into commodities um, whilst sentiment is so poor. Another uh, contrarian uh, view to, uh, to end with. Uh, thank you, John. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure talking to you. 
Not at all. Thank you very much indeed. Take care.